Welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and in this episode, we caught up with two early pioneers in the field of data journalism, Brant Houston and Steve Doig. From crunching numbers with massive mainframes to using Excel spreadsheets, the pair speak to us about the evolution of data journalism from the 1950s up until present day. Brant Houston teaches investigative and advanced reporting at the University of Illinois. He also oversees the online newsroom at Illinois, cu-citizenaccess.org, which also serves as a lab for digital innovation and data journalism. He served for more than a decade as the executive director of investigative reporters and editors, and as a professor at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Before joining IRE, he was an award-winning investigative reporter at daily newspapers for 17 years. He is the author of four editions of the textbook, Computer Assisted Reporting, A Practical Guide, and co-author of the fourth edition and fifth edition of the Investigative Reporter's Handbook. Steve Doig is a professor of data journalism at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University. Before joining ASU in 1996 as the founding night chair, he was associate editor of the Miami Herald, where he worked for 20 years on a number of award-winning investigative projects. He consults actively with news organizations on complex data analysis stories and has trained reporters around the world. He is also a political science graduate of Dartmouth College, and he also graduated and later taught at the Defense Information School and spent a year as a combat correspondent for the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with Brant Houston and Steve Doig. Doig, Brant Houston, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. So let's start out with how you two know each other. I mean, you both have been journalists for quite a while and now both professors. Like, how did you guys meet? Um, on telephone, uh, as I recall, and Brant probably has better memory of details, but, you know, we were people who were starting to do this kind of thing, but we didn't know about each other at all. We didn't know other people were playing with these new personal computers. And uh, and at some point, Brant got in touch with me, I think, to ask questions about SAS, was it? Anyway. Yeah, so, yeah the statistical software, as Steve was saying, it was a very limited field in terms of number of people. And, and uh, it was always word of mouth. And just like, uh, who knows something about SAS? Because I was using it for uh, a project. And I just called Steve up and we had a network then that was investigative reporters and editors. And that's before NICAR. And so there was this whole cooperative feeling of we're all learning together and watching what everyone's doing. And if you look back on it, it was a little bit probably like early rock and roll. There, there weren't that many people. And and you somebody was doing something, you'd call them up and you know, and the amazing thing about everybody, particularly Steve, is he'd say, I've got to go to him and to a meeting, I'll call you back, or I've got to go to a meeting in five minutes. So when I called, I always said, you know, here's this little problem I'm having. Can you help me? He goes, oh, just do this. <laughs> and, then, and then eventually we met at conferences and talked a lot. And that was like what, in the 80s? 80s. Yeah. Mid-80s. 
Now, Steve was among the originals, and then I was probably among what I called the 50. I don't know how many there really were, but there may be a few dozen people. The second wave. <laughs> I had bought my uh, Atari 800 in, I think it was 1983, roughly. And, you know, it really as a thing to play with at home, uh, you know, as it happened, I had learned uh, basic back in college. Uh, Dartmouth College is where basic got invented. And, and so this is the uh, late 1960s. And uh, so I, I learned, you know, exceedingly uh, limited basic back then, but I always thought it was kind of cool to be able to tell a machine to do something that otherwise would be tedious. And so when personal computers came out and I, I missed the Apple II, but, but uh, bought an Atari 800 for like probably $1,800, my, you know, which was real money back then. And, uh, you know, my wife thought I was nuts, you know, spending all this kind of money on a toy. But I began to see it as a thing that would help me do my job better. And, and uh, that, that's what, where it sort of started with me uh, on that. And I, I actually, having gone over to Providence, Rhode Island, I was in Hartford, Connecticut to talk to Elliot Jasmine. Uh, after I read about him in Time magazine, I thought what he was doing sounded cool. Um, when I went over and saw him, I hadn't gotten a PC yet. So I actually worked on a mainframe for a little while. And then I got a small IBM, whatever it was, PC2 or whatever. And you could actually hear it count. But it was <laughs> so cool. I could look at 20,000 records at one time, you know, and over a period of a couple hours back then. And then... Another thing that people don't understand is you've got to invest. And uh, I think I actually shelled out a couple thousand bucks for a personal computer at home because I didn't want to wait around for the mainframe uh, back at work. So it was it was a really interesting time. <laughs> yeah, I learned. Uh, I, I also used uh, the Miami Herald mainframe uh, for some of my projects that required reading tape. Um, you know, after I had kind of graduated from the Atari 800, I actually bought also an IBM PC uh, yeah. at home, you know, green phosphor screen and all that and uh, screaming, I thought it was 16K memory or something. Um, but uh, when I was, I had that at home, but at the Herald, the only people that had uh, computers were the secretaries. Um, like the, you know, the managing editor's secretary had one. So I it got to the point where I would wait until she went home five, five 30. And then I run over to her desk and sign on to her computer and start doing things with Lotus one, two, three, um, that, uh, I could, and then I finally spreadsheet software, right? <laughs> yeah, very early spreadsheet software. Exactly. Yeah. I guess we ought to, do, you know, we, we talked about, uh, Excel being the, uh, the big thing, but, uh, Excel was built on, you know, Lotus one, two, three. And before that, uh, what am I thinking? VisiCalc. Yeah. VisiCalc was the, you know, original software idea of, of a spreadsheet. And, uh, I had actually gotten VisiCalc when I was still back in the, uh, Miami Herald's, uh, Tallahassee Bureau. And that's when I began doing, you know, actual journalism using data and numbers. We all do this because we had what was known as a document state of mind. And the documents went digital. And a lot of the documents work we did was counting things. 
is our good friend and colleague, Sarah Cohen says, and she's a pioneer in the field is, you know, what do we do? We count things. And these tools allowed us to count things and a lot of things in a short time. Right. They handle the tedium of counting, you know, thousands or even millions of things and piling them up in little piles and telling us how many are in each pile. And and uh, that could be done by hand. I mean, you know, all, frankly, all the significant projects I've ever done basically were counting projects. Um, you know, there's no fancy, uh, uh, you know, math or statistical uh, power or anything like that required for almost everything I did. And the, and the big leap, which Steve was a part of, was visualizing it. And, and the hurricane project was a key moment when you looked at wind speeds and damage to buildings. And that opened our eyes that, you know, the, the cliche of the picture is worth a thousand words. Well, it's worth a thousand records, a million records. And suddenly visualization was like, oh, you know, we could have all these epiphanies by simply mapping things or using graphs. And, you know, a lot of things other professions have been doing for a while, but finally we did it. And I just wonder if you could just maybe backtrack a little bit and tell us about, you know, how you two actually got into journalism in the first place. Now, Steve, I know you were a war correspondent in Vietnam and Brett, you have a significant investigative journalism background as well as data journalism. So could you just walk us back of how that happened? My path into journalism was very weird. I had no thought when I went to college. I was I went to college. I figured I'd be a doctor. Freshman chemistry persuaded me that wasn't going to happen. Uh, and then I, uh, you know, basically fell heavily into the animal house life at Dartmouth, which is where Animal House got written. Um, and uh, wound up, uh, you know, basically getting thrown out or leaving uh, by my sophomore year, I guess. And back then the war was going on, so I promptly got drafted. Um, and as I was standing in the draft line, you know, literally naked with, you know, 50 other guys waiting to get uh, my medical uh, exam and all that kind of thing, a recruiting sergeant was going down the line and stopped in front of me, looked at some paper. He said, oh, you, you, you have some college, unlike a lot of the other characters that were, uh, that were standing there. And he said, uh, he said, you know, if you sign up for three years, if you enlist for three years, we'll send you to, how about this uh, information school, uh, defense information school. And, um, you know, and then, and he said, it beats carrying a rifle in Vietnam. And I said, boy, that does sound like good advice. So I wound up enlisting in the army instead of being drafted and, and carrying a rifle, went to this information school, which basically taught you how to be an army journalist. And then they promptly sent me to Vietnam. And it was while I was in Vietnam, I got this, oh, yeah, this journalism thing. I, maybe I can do that for a living. I had no idea at all of being a journalist uh, growing up. I'm not one of these guys who always had a newspaper route and and uh, was editor of my you know junior high school paper or anything like that. I know so many people came into it that way. I didn't at all. I I strictly owe my career and and basically all my journalism training came from uh, came from the army and then OJT. So uh, that's how I wound up into it. Um, I actually did deliver papers, but never thought about doing journalism. Um, 
And I went to sort of an artsy college and all I wanted to do was write. And I did a creative thesis in poetry, which later helped me with headline writing. Um, and I think I had a little internship, yeah. And then as I was coming out of college, I was applying to various places that would pay me for writing. And I knew I did not want to become a professor, uh, ironically. And so um, I had a friend down in the Boston area who said, "When you, what are you going to do in May when you graduate or June or whatever? And he said, I said, I don't know, I'm just trying to write. He said, well, if you come down to this newspaper, you can get $25 a sports story, a feature story, $20 a game, and there's a school board you can cover. And I said, okay, I'll do that for a little while. And I got into it's 1976 and uh, all the president's men was out there and everyone went to do investigative reporting, but it turned out I really liked it. I got a couple of stories, was lucky, started streaming for the Boston Globe and my two year plan to do journalism until I figured out what I wanted to do is led to a 45 year plan. I tell all my students to be aware of a two year plan. Um, and so, yeah, and I think, I think I was fascinated on putting puzzles together. And so I was very document driven at the beginning. I did like interviewing people. I still remember the first time I interviewed someone who had set up a different self-defense studio apart from a mob run studio. And I'm interviewing him. He said, you know, things are going well until they shot me. <laughs> and I, I saved that tape for a long time because you heard me go, they what? <laughs> I think I was sort of, I think I was sort of uh, hooked at that moment. So. That's a great, both of you have great ends into this, uh, into this field. Um, now, Brett, you did write an article for datajournalism.com uh, that we just published. It was an excellent overview of sort of the history of data journalism. You know, you begin talking about the U.S. presidential election in the 50s as the sort of beginning of, of the field. Tell us about that. Well, somebody or somebody's the CBS network got a bright idea that there were computers and that if you fed in a bunch of data into the computer, you might be able to predict uh, who won the election that year before all the results came in. And they did it. And from what I could tell from my research, they had a pretty good idea who won. I think it was Eisenhower. Um, but they froze. They were like, we're not sure we're right. And this is like taking a big risk. And and that was like what I call the false start. And then then jump ahead. What would it be? See, 15 years, something like that. I don't know. Phil Meyer really taking apart the uh, the assumptions of what caused a race riot in Detroit. Uh, where the Detroit folks said it's all these outside people who came in and it turned out, no, they had problems within the city and the people riding were actually people who lived there and most, uh, mostly were from there. And then, again, another start, but that they wrote a book and then that really started rolling things slowly but surely. And I just wonder, were you two like really following what he was doing at that point? Or when did you sort of stumble upon precision journalism, so to speak, in your careers? I was at the Herald, uh, the Miami Herald at the time as a young, young reporter. And Phil had spent much of his career at the Herald before he 
moved into, uh, you know, became a Knight Ritter consultant, basically, and then became a professor and all that. But at one point, um, the Herald brought Phil back to do a, you know, a talk to uh, interested reporters, of which there were maybe three or four of us in the meeting. Uh, um, one was Rich Morin, um, who went on to become a, a pollster for the Washington Post for, uh, for a year. He was at the Herald and then there. So a couple of us who were sort of vaguely interested in data. But that's the first I had heard of Precision Journal. We, we each got the book at the, at the talk. And, you know, I read that and said, you know, wow, this is cool. I mean, that really helped set me off in, um, you know, and it was early in my, uh, you know, in my Herald uh, time. I forget what I was uh, back then. Uh, I think I had started out in the uh, West Palm Beach Bureau just covering general assignment stuff. And I might have been the aviation writer at the time. Had no interest, of course, in aviation, but that's what I was assigned to uh, to cover. So I that's where I got Meyer. I mean, when he wrote uh, Precision Journalism, I don't know, I was still in high school at the time. And I, again, had no concept of journalism as a thing then. So. Yeah, and for me, um, I was aware of something going on because of a great uh, reporting team, Barlett and Steele, and uh, out of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I knew they they'd done something with data and courts. <laughs> that was kind of because I started going to IRE conference since 1979. And, uh, but really, I backed into it from Elliot Jaspin getting this, this, this Time magazine article about him matching records of school bus driver names with names of criminals in Providence. And that was like, how could how can you do that? How can you do that so well? So, so then I, I, Jasmine was really my first mentor. And then, then I started reading everything that I could get my hands on. I discovered precision journalism and Phil Meyer. And, and quite frankly, that was very uh, intimidating. Um, it was like, I want to know this stuff, but I really didn't start getting into any statistical stuff until, and even at a low level until I started talking to Steve um, and some social science researchers, you know, once I got hit by the bug, it was like, I got to read everything. Okay. Phil is, Phil's the guy <laughs> and Elliot's the guy. I think Phil once called Elliot a, a, a cowboy data journalist <laughs> because he wasn't as rigorous with stats, but Elliot showed everyone that you could just, as we said earlier, count things and have a really good story. I mean, both of you were journalists who then kind of transitioned into data. And I wonder what advice do you have for aspiring data journalists today who are maybe thinking about going back to school or, you know, doing some self-taught stuff or going to a NICAR conference or, you know, signing up for some training? What, what advice do you have? All of that, I would say. And I, I guess to me, the thing I try to get across to students is don't feel like you have to have mastered it all to start doing it. You know, pick a, a you know, easy thing, you know, a you know, daily story where all you need to do is 
put something in a different order. And if you have learned how to get, you know, your list into Excel and you hit the sort button, all of a sudden you started doing journalism. You've moved it from the boring alphabetical order into the, you know, the best on the top and the worst on the bottom. And suddenly there's journalism at each end of it. Uh, so I guess that would be the the thing is don't be intimidated by, and you know, and actually reading NICAR-L can be very intimidating because you have all these, you know, incredible unicorns who have mastered so many uh, really exotic skills. Uh, you don't have to be one of them to start, uh, you know, just start doing, start doing stuff with it and you will, you'll accrete. It's, it's almost like, you know, uh, coral, you know, you'll grow the uh, additional things when you discover you need them. You don't need it all to get started on it. And I think one of the approaches I have is start with the story. I think it's journalists are so busy and so hyper, uh, you know, they want things to be applied as quickly as possible. So Steve's suggestion that you put something in columns and rows and put it in a different order to see the story. It's a great idea. I did a story once having to do with uh, a possible serial killer. And that story was basically putting in 45 records of homicides and sorting it high, you know, high to low on account on where the people who had been murdered were from, as opposed to where the bodies were found. And that was it. Um, and there's a great example in the movie Spotlight, uh, in which the only reason you use the spreadsheet is because everything in the directory of priest is in a hard copy. And Matt Carroll, who we both know has become a great data journalist, is he laughs about it because, yeah, I was just typing stuff into a cell and then we counted them. And so, so, but I think starting with the story really helps from the journalism point of view. I mean, there's some journalists who just love numbers and love data, and that's great. They're going to find lots of stories. But for someone who's really busy, find a story that has a database and see if it helps you. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on methodologies at the bottom of articles. Some newsrooms, I feel like they don't do it, and it really annoys me because I want to know how they did something. And then others are very transparent and will walk you through everything, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And how, what are you educating your students to do with this if, if you are teaching a data journalism course? I'm a big believer in the nerd box as a important thing. It's, you know, it goes back to what we were talking originally about, uh, you know, having people see our work, you know, show basically show your work. Um, I heavily got into it before we had the internet. I uh, did a big uh, project on criminal justice in Miami and did a 22 page, uh, basically how we did it. Here are all our data sources and so on. And it was printed out and we, and we put on the bottom of the story because we didn't want to you know, use up that much newsprint to, to actually write it all. But we said, anybody who wants to know all the details on where we got our data and how we did it and, and you know, the program that I wrote to do and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, send us, a, um, you know, send us a, a note and we'll send it to you, you know, for five bucks or something like that. And um, and we did get requests. It was from libel lawyers, of course. Uh, and you know, we sent all that to them, and uh, we never got sued. So I think that, uh, but that was an early 
basically an early nerd box because it was before you had the kind of infinite capacity of the internet to kind of throw everything out there that you wanted. Now, of course, we're doing, you know, we're putting our entire database online so that readers can troll through it themselves and, and give them the tools to do it. And I think that's a perfectly appropriate thing to do. I, I think it's, I think it's absolutely essential when it comes to credibility and trust. Um, you know, the people who take your work seriously want to know whether they, they're angry with it or happy with it. They want to know how you did it. I mean, and, and you tell them, uh, yeah, I, anytime you see that, I would send an email saying you really got to tell people how you did this. <laughs> it's I think it's, I think it's become close to a professional industry standard. Now, I wonder if the two of you were to sort of pick one or two of your of articles out there that really defined data journalism over over the past, I don't know, 40 years, 50 years, what would those be? I would do, we both, and we've already talked about it, uh, Phil Myers' Detroit uh, riot story. Um, once you found out about that, that was remarkable. Elliot Jasmine's story, school bus drivers and criminals that was one that jumped forward. Uh, Steve and I both thought um, the color of money on mortgage discrimination done by Atlanta Journal Constitution um, was a, a breakthrough moment because the field was getting recognized for what it could bring to investigate journalism and journalism in general. That was the first Pulitzer winner that had a huge data element to it. And, and uh, I think that's what helped catch the attention of all those other investigative reporters out there who were used to looking at documents and shoe leather and interviewing and uh, that kind of thing. They saw this as another tool they needed to learn. The thing I loved is it got the editor's attention and the publisher's attention because it won an award. So you got more support. And then I have to say, uh, Steve's work on the hurricane, Hurricane Andrew, and and showing the power of mapping, because that was a story, it was in the narrative, it was in the story itself. But if you looked at the map, you can help but go high wind speeds, high damage, right? Low wind speeds, high damage. And, and you know, a lot of times the data is part of the story, but it's the foundation for the investigation or the story. And once that was identified, right, Steve, you identified that the reporters could get out there and find out that building inspectors weren't doing their job. The codes were terrible. And, and most of all, it comes back to people, people who are endangered and hurt because of these flaws. But that map told everyone where to look. Yeah. And it let us, uh, you know, basically it came up with the lead, the data analysis of the newer the home, the more likely to be destroyed. I mean, that was, and and like all data journalism, the, the data does not answer why. That's the other thing I tell my students. You know, you have to use the other kind of reporting you already know to answer why. Why was that pattern there? And it's like Brant said, we had we wound up actually sending people out to to dig through the uh, inspection records and to walk through the you know destroyed homes with with structural engineers who pointed out the flaws in the uh, you know the roof trusses and things like that that were uh, that were allowed. The data didn't tell us that it was the on the ground reporting that that explained why it happened. And it was a great story in that it had the three parts of investigative reporting at its best, 
which is document slash data, interviews, and observation, that is being on the ground. If you have all three of those things, you're really telling the why. All these other stories too uh, that are mentioned, you know, uh, Steve, that you've worked on as well, like for instance, the election in the United States in 2000. I mean, can you just tell us a little bit about that? That was, uh, that was lots of fun. I got, by the time I had left the Herald, I had left the Herald probably the year before, I guess it was, no, a couple of years before, but got a call from a Herald editor who said, uh, you know, we have all our reporters scattered around covering a whole bunch of different elements of this of this, uh, you know, period after the election, but before we know who won. Uh, but uh, the editor had the idea. I wonder if we can, if we can, you know, sort of tell what would have happened if you know all the votes were counted and so on. And I started thinking about it, and I realized that uh, if we had precinct level results, I mean, because I, and again, this is one of these chance favors of prepared mind. I had done lots of you know, election result stories in Miami about municipal elections. And I realized that you could, you know, you could tell based on the the patterns within the election, uh, you know, sort of where problems were and things like that. So so basically, I told the editor, look, if you can gather me a collection of the precinct level results, not the county level, there's 67 counties in Florida, but I need the, and I forget how many precincts there are in Florida, several thousand. I said, if you can get all those to me as, you know, data that I can then pull into Excel and so on, I'll look and see if there's a a pattern that we can um, uh, that we can do something with, and and so they grabbed the whatever interns they had in the office and gave them the incredibly tedious job of calling you know all these sixty seven uh, election supervisors and getting them to to send us the results, many of which were you know facts to us on paper that had to be hand typed in by these poor interns. So anyway, they wound up, you know, cranking out all this data and I was able to then take it and, and uh, you know, kind of look at the patterns of it and to use it to, you know, suggest where the problems were. What I basically took was the number of people who showed up to vote and applied the the uh, what had happened in the counted ballots to the ballots that didn't get counted. So in other words, if uh, Bush won 60% of the votes in some particular precinct, I would give Bush 60% of the uncounted ballots. And in doing that, that's when I came up with the, you know, Gore would have won by, I forget the number again, I don't know, 15,000 votes or something like that. Uh, Florida, if all, all those votes had uh, been properly counted. Uh, it was fascinating because for about four days, I was, you know, flavor of the month. I was getting calls from CNN and uh, they were getting prepared to fly me up to New York to appear on MSNBC hourly or something like that. And I was kind of gathering, uh, you know, uh, my suit together to uh, go do that. Uh, and then they called up and said, never mind, the Supreme Court just uh, just voted, you know, so uh, so basically Gore lost uh, on a five to four vote rather than uh, than uh, than that one. 
But again, it was a matter of counting that was all done on uh, Microsoft Excel. You know, you, you didn't need a mainframe computer or anything like that. What you needed was an army of, of uh, uh, eager interns to help out on um, gathering the data. And then I just had to crunch it. Fascinating. And speaking of Excel, I mean, I just wonder if both of you could sort of talk us through, you know, what are some of the key moments, technologically speaking, in terms of innovation that, you know, the world of journalism has seen and therefore data journalism? I think the tools, are, I think, have remained pretty basic uh, for getting started and doing most of the stories. I totally agree with Steve that um, the gateway drug is Excel and that he loves to say that, that having a spreadsheet um, is the big technological Leap, um, a database manager, which I actually started with as opposed to Excel because I'm fascinated with matching records, is the other basic tool because it allows you to compare and link and join in, uh, different data sets. And that's a very powerful thing to do. There are other software that does it, but the what's behind it, SQL, is just so prevalent, so many other packages. It's just a good thing to have. And I think those two are the big technological ones. And then it gets a little messy for saying which software, but the idea of mapping everything and geolocation, and people talk about it all the time, but that was a big deal. And the software is more difficult. Which one do you use? And so forth. And it's kind of now, you know, there are several free versions. So those three things to me, that visualization, there's one other that still doesn't quite get its due, which is social network analysis. And that's mapping relationships. I think social media has opened up everyone's eyes to connecting the dots in a, in a statistical way too, not just visual, is a very powerful tool. You start to see power and connections. Yeah, the only, the only thing I'd add to that is, I think the thing that made it all possible for us, however, is the personal computer. Um, you know, Brandt had worked with mainframes. I worked with mainframes, um, you know, at the Herald. But frankly, it's hard to get access to mainframe. I mean, Phil Meyer, that's he did all his stuff with mainframes. Uh, he had to get access to the University of Miami one. Uh, and I, I sort of lucked into using the Herald mainframe because um, I had been early on asked to help a reporter do a project um, with uh, about money laundering in Miami, you know, where all the, you know, foreign dictator money was being spent and things like that. And so, uh, you know, using property tax records. But to do that, you had to be able to read tape. And that's how that's what led me to, you know, learning SAS, which was on the mainframe. You know, access to our mainframe is what opened up the world of sort of big data to me and having to learn, you know, SAS to, uh, uh, to do that kind of analysis. But the thing that made it possible to do things, you know, for daily journalism was the personal computer. And I think that's what spread it out to the rest of the journalism world. And I wonder if you guys, you're talking about this mainframe, but some of us don't quite, can't imagine what this physically looks like. Can you just describe, I mean, I have an idea from watching old movies and stuff, but. That's it. That's it. It's this big room with this big thing with these tapes spinning. That's 
Yeah. Safe spinning and and guys walking around in white lab coats uh, with, uh, you know, stylus and writing something on a thing. I mean, that's basically what uh, what it was like. And, and a teletype that you talked to it with, uh, you know, you're working basically on a teletype with yellow paper was how I first wound up uh, doing all this stuff. And speeding up to now the pandemic, do you believe that COVID-19 has kind of revolutionized data journalism in some way? Has data journalism gone mainstream since March 2020? I think it's helped uh, people know the revolution is here <laughs> and that it's occurred. I think it, um, it's it been a great marketing campaign for why journalists should use data. Um, a lot's been going on and it's around the world. Um, you know, it's spread from the U.S. into Europe, and it, it's completely global now. And you get a global pandemic, suddenly everyone can see there are all these journalists using data. Um, it may encourage a lot of others to use data. It's data every day, visualization every day. I would say before the pandemic came along, and in fact, 20 years before the pandemic came along, we were already at the point in data journalism that any serious newsroom had people like Brandt or me uh, doing some of this, at least. Um, you know, this, there's, <clears throat> you know, when I started doing the, like the 1990 census stuff and so on at the Miami Herald, back then a lot of the innovation was happening in those mid-sized metros like the Herald and Atlanta Journal-Constitution and so on. It was the, you know, national paper like the New York Times uh, was slower, much slower to get into that. They would just go and hire a consultant to, to do something if they were doing it. So, but a fi it, finally, at some point, the, you know, the New York Times looked around and said, hmm, you know, I think we need to get some of that and just went around and cherry picked uh, from, you know, great, great teams all around the country and brought them all in and, you know, instantly put together a, you know, fabulous, uh, data journalism thing. So I, I would say well before the pandemic came along, any serious newsroom had people doing data journalism to some degree. I, I think Brant's absolutely right that this has raised the the um, uh, vis visibility of it, I guess, not only within the newsroom, but also to the consumers of what we do. And I just wonder if you think, given there is this push now and an, an understanding and an appreciation maybe even for public service journalism, at least I'm experiencing that in Europe where I am, um, you know, I wonder, is this a moment where we need to be capitalizing on this and trying to build trust up and using data as that sort of power, to, like that fuel to do that? Data and the data journalism tools are a great way to do that kind of thing. And, and I think, you know, almost all of us who got into journalism really see it as public service. I mean, that's that's why we're doing what we're doing. We like to believe that the work we do is uh, producing something that will cause uh, the world to be a bit better, that, you know, people who's uh, whose problems we write about can be uh, worked on if the if a spotlight is shown on it. Uh, so you know, again, data journalism is another tool for doing that, and it's not necessarily better than you know deep uh, you know living with a problem, you know, or good interviewing wide ranges and so on. All these other 
journalism tools that we've had since journalism got started uh, are also ways of doing public service journalism. So I think this is just another tool. But to get to your point on trust, I think that data journalism has really helped us increase the trust uh, and the credibility of what we do because we've taken it away from purely anecdotal. And so I think this is part of the general push to become more trustworthy and credible. And because we know how bad uh, data can be, we also can tell people when, you know, what policy is being formed from is just so flawed, you're gonna get flawed policy. So I think it gives journalists a chance to sort of raise the ante uh, not only what it means to be a journalist, which is a Phil Meyer line, but uh, it raises sanity on to be more credible. If we have this data, people can say, okay, you, you didn't find the like five worst cases you stumbled across. <laughs> no, this is what's really happening across the board. And Steve's always had a great line that I always steal, which is the data allows you to see the forest and then you can pick out the bad trees. <laughs> so, but we've seen the forest. We can tell people we're, we didn't just stumble on this and that. There's there's a pattern. Yeah, and I think it's so important as well to find that human angle. You know, so you're not just citing numbers. You're actually doing it for the right reasons, and you're kind of trying to sort of see, okay, why does this matter? Because otherwise, people just they they're apathetic. And the more numbers we throw at them, it seems. And I mean, both of you have done so much education um, and training around the world when it comes to data journalism. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about, you know, how this, how this field has shifted over the years and how you, how you, you've been a part of that. Well, I'll, I'll throw out one anecdote that, that struck me. It was shortly after I came to uh, Arizona State I'd left the Herald and so on, came to Arizona State and um, had a visible job, basically, of uh, being a data journalist and so on. And I got an invitation to speak to the BBC, uh, to BBC reporters in London. It was my first trip over as a uh, as a journalist. And I so I did some preparation, sat in my office in um, in Phoenix uh, went to the Scotland Yard. Uh, there was a Scotland Yard site where they actually had a little table of the number of crimes occurring in each of, I don't know, the 33 boroughs of London. So I downloaded that and so on and made a little map and so on, something to prepare for this talk I was going to do with BBC. And then, you know, went over to England, went to the BBC and had this nice conference room where they, you know, had a screen and so on. And I popped this map up and the reporters there fell out. It's like, oh my God, where did you get this? How you know? How can how can you know you have this uh, this incredible information? Where did this come from? I said, well, I sat in my office, went to you know this site on the internet, this newfangled site, because this would have been 1996 or seven, somewhere around there. Um, and, you know, downloaded it and put it in this little simple mapping program shaded, you know, four different colors or something. And it was so that was the astonishing thing to them. Then the next time I came back to England, everybody was doing it. Milverton had started doing his uh, trainings, uh, you know, every, the the idea and it wasn't spread just for my talk. It was just it had percolated up. It was a zeitgeist thing. Uh, you know, people became aware 
But to me, that striking difference between that first visit and later on when, you know, people knew about it and wanted more of it and so on, the, you know, the hunger for learning these tools was great. And that's where, you know, NICAR and, and uh, Brandt and, and the various training people, Jennifer LaFleur and so on, have all started, you know, going, you know, first over to, uh, to Europe, but then spreading from there. To me, it's that's the astonishing thing of data journalism. It's now a truly worldwide thing. It's no longer just something, you know, Americans do. We started the first global investigative journalism conference in 2001. It was in Copenhagen. It was in the U.S. And we had no idea what would happen. There were two tracks, uh, investigate without data, investigate with data. And we just didn't know what would happen. And we got three, three, more than 300 journalists from 40 countries. And they're all talking data. And this is 2001. It was already just going. And by 2003, we had another conference. And now we you know, had some more countries and then Amsterdam. And within the first decade of the 21st century, you know, where we seem to have a lock on the knowledge and so forth. I was learning things from journalists from Africa and Asia and Europe and Latin America it was exploding down there. Uh, it, yeah, it was just uh, it was just amazing. Uh, and the things that contributed, of course, was the Web and then the cloud. And we kind of have not mentioned it. Of course, it's sitting in the room, which is the Panama Papers and the Pandora Papers show the power of this. And we wouldn't have all this if we didn't have this other element that we went from competition to collaboration. And data leads to collaboration because you can't know everything. And you want, certain, you know, you want lots of eyes on the data to make sure you're seeing what's really going on. So I just see this as a remarkable unfolding of a sharing of knowledge. In the end, to the point you made earlier, Tara, it's about people. It's about you know public service and protecting people, and sometimes limiting abuse. Uh, but that's what I thought was so, so remarkable. And Steve like caught one of the best anecdotes of: you go up, you show up, you show some things, you come back a couple of years later, and everyone's teaching you and asking you, "Why don't you know about this?" And that's like the perfect moment. Absolutely. And I, you know, that brings me to my next question of, I wonder, how do you stay on top of this field? It's so fast moving. And you guys were really a part of the, you know, the pioneers, the building blocks of this, of this field. So, I mean, how do you prepare your students and how do you develop your curriculum? And how do you know that you're, you know, the latest thing? Because that's, it's, it, that's like another job, isn't it, on, on, in itself? Well, I can say that up until the mid to late 1990s, I knew how to do everything that was being done in data journalism. And right around then, people started, I don't know, writing like newsroom applications for, for taking data and, and web scraping and, and other things started happening. And, you know, sort of serious data visualization tools were being created. And, and that's when I realized I cannot... I, I at least can't be a unicorn and, and continue to be master of everything. And that's when I really sort of narrowed my 
focus into statistical tools and and turn turn that into kind of my thing that I had to offer to uh, to data journalism. But uh, you know, uh, keeping up now, uh, you know, with me, it's basically reading NICARL, seeing the stuff that's being done. Uh, happily, I'm a uh, one of the judges for the Sigma, what are now called the Sigma Awards, basically the you know the World Data Journalism Awards. So I get to see all the amazing stuff that's being uh, being done. But you know, in reality, I'm not doing data journalism that much anymore. I'm in my early 70s. Uh, I'm happily teaching my students. Got some special, you know. I teach sports data uh, as one of my courses. It's great fun, uh, you know. Tons of data there that you don't have to FOIA to get your hands on, <clears throat> and um, you know. So I, you know, I have my niche now, but uh, I'm I'm actually happy not to having to be one of those young reporters who are out there trying to master each of the new tools that are popping up and the and the explosion of the tools also to me has been a an astonishing thing there's so many people out you know people at stanford and uh places like that that are kind of creating tools for a variety of applications but some of them are doing it actually just for journalism there's all kinds of neat stuff out there i'm aware it exists but i certainly am not keeping up with it so the way that I do try to keep up as much as I can, um, I'm in a good position. Is I still uh, help organize the data track for the Global Investigative Network. So that forces me to keep an eye on what people are doing. I judge some contests. Um, the Global Network has built up a really good resource center. Uh, we've got you know the Journalism Center, European one. So they're like places I check through. Um, you know, I, I get word of mouth stuff from people, but a lot of it is just watching that and then watching the awards and constantly trying to categorize it by checking those like this is more simple counting. This is new kinds of visualizations. Here's a new tool R. Here's where people are coding. I can't do it all, but at least I know who can do it. And, you know, it, it's on a macro level of what we used to do, which is call Steve if I'm getting into some statistical stuff or, you know, SAS or, or whatever. Um, it, it's just a macro level now. If I want somebody who can tell me about Python coding, which I keep starting to learn and then stopping or whatever, oh, call that person. Um, and it's the same thing. You're looking at the stories, you're looking at the awards, you're looking at the networks. Thank goodness there are all these networks now of saying here are new tools, new resources. So that's, you know, that's the best you can do at, at this point. It's just so expansive. I would say, by the way, we, we really ought to credit IRE back in the earliest days of this idea of collaboration. You know, because certainly before IRE came along, the idea of people from competing newsroom, even within a newsroom, you didn't collaborate with anybody. You know, we all hugged our stuff to our to ourselves. That's how we competed for you know jobs and status. But uh, IRE made it possible for us to talk between newsrooms. And then when NICAR came along and IRE subsumed it, uh, you know that. That idea of sharing knowledge and sharing skills and so on became a, a thing that uh, was treated as a kind of social good. And I think that made a huge difference in, in journalism in general, but certainly in the spread of data journalism. 
And well, finally, gentlemen, I just wonder, you know, we've talked a lot about the past, but what about the future? What excites you right now? And, and are there any predictions you want to make over the next 10 years in the industry? I think, um, you know, the tools will continue to proliferate to deal with problems. I think the, you know, the great tool that still hasn't quite been uh, created, but we're probably getting there will be, you know, something that will take, uh, that'll do text analysis better than we have now that will be able to essentially read long text things and find deeper patterns in it. Um, you know, the killer app supposedly is uh, being able to record a interview and feed it into the software and get a, you know, a legitimate uh, transcript spit back to you immediately. I think we're getting close to that. Uh, you know, certainly the, uh, you know, the Google translations of my, of my uh, phone messages are usually pretty spot on. Uh, so clearly that, that kind of stuff exists. Uh, that may, I don't know, I guess that may be the big thing. What do you think, Brant? I think, uh, I think you're totally right about the moving unstructured data into structured data and the software getting easier to do that. And that's been kind of the history of software. I think a big thing going on now is we always start with buzzwords and that are you know based on great ideas. And one right now is artificial intelligence. Um, I think we're getting more sensible about how much that can really do or not do. I think it's going to get better. I think throwing algorithms at really huge amounts of data to help us see possible patterns will help. We've still got to have a journalist, you know, journalists with brains looking at what comes through. But I think we see a lot happening with AI that will aid and abet us. Reuters uh, has something called, I think, Links Insights going on now where it's sort of saying, okay, we're giving the reporters AIs to, you know, to look through large amounts of data and suggest patterns. And, and not only use that, but it, it's a combo of humans and computers there in programming. Um, the other part that's going to be exciting, but maybe difficult, is how we translate a lot of what we're doing um, to the starting point on a mobile phone or a mobile device. I think especially for us that have grown up with the web, we see the site is a starting point. None of my students start with the website or anything from what I can tell. It starts on the phone social media, messages, text, and so forth. And I think uh, we're already working on it, but how do you present data on a smaller screen in a more effective way? And how do you make that data even more uh, interactive so that people can be informed by the data, not waiting for a large project, but just going through their day? We've got all these little tools but uh, and apps, but they're not as journalistically purposed. So I, I, I feel like the data, we can do things that allow the data to inform people better. If you take something simple like restaurant inspections, I've worked on something locally where for a few years anyway, you could walk up to a restaurant where I live and get its entire inspection history. If you wanted to look at it to say, do they fail their health inspections all the time? That's a small, just a small item, but I think we're gonna get more integrated into that. Um, 
And so I, you know, I think we're working on that. We worked a lot on using Excel and database managers and mapping better. These were all tools other people were using, but they weren't as easy to use. They got easier to use. Um, I think the AI and entity searches, topic modeling, all things that sound exotic to a lot of people now um, are going to be something we'll be seeing. Topic modeling, I understand, being at the New York Times to better understand their audiences and what messages they should be shipping or stories to people. So the business side's already cranking away on it. Uh, uh, so, yeah, so I see us going in those sort of directions. I'd, I'd add, uh, it suddenly occurred to me, virtual reality. You know, you always see these things in science fiction movies of, you know, the guy sort of sorting through data that's kind of floating nebulously in front of him. Uh, I think that, you know, that may be a way to start seeing some of these patterns once uh, virtual reality, which still seems to be a few years uh, from really being right. But that may be a thing that we use an augmented reality. The idea of being able to go out in the field as a reporter and be wearing the glasses or having, I don't know, the, the jack on the back of your head. I uh, haven't yet seen the new uh, Matrix yet, but uh, but somehow or other having uh, additional information about the thing that you are covering sort of right there in front of you and readily available. That may be a thing that will happen more of. Yeah, and, and we're talking about the news gallery side. I think there's a lot of presentation side where stuff is happening. Uh, but I think we've always been fascinated with how you gather the news using in the data using these tools. Um, yeah, and I, I think we'll see a lot more integration with people in the field going and feeding back into a database and the database feeding back to them too. I mean, it's something that happens in the utility industry all the time. There's, you know, sort of the mothership back there and the utility guys are here and they're getting stuff there. I, you know, I can see us speeding that process up while a reporter is in the field. Well, that was absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. Certainly my pleasure. It's fun to reminisce about this stuff and to look ahead. And it's always good to talk with Brent. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.